You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. The Houseman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. I've been a member and supporter of Go Wild for over a year now. Man, how time flies. Their social media platform is for hunters by hunters. And if you followed me for any length of time, you know that I'm in the woods or on the water if I'm not working. And yes, some ask, do you work? Unfortunately, I do. It's a place that I post all of my trophies, no matter how big or small. Mine, mostly small. I get tips, tricks, tactics, and advice from people who eat, breathe, and sleep the outdoors. I log all of my outdoor adventures, including the time spent listening to the best podcast in the land, The Journey, hosted by no other than yours truly. So when I need anything outdoors, I just log on to the Go Wild store, pick out what I need, and that's anything from hunting, fishing, camping, optics, outdoor wear, and yes, hound supplies. I'm proud to partner up with the Go Wild team. So let's get your journey started today here on Go Wild. Guys, it's about that time of year, which we're talking about deer season for all you notorious deer hunters. And we're going to go back into some deer tracking. And today we're going to have on Robert Miller from Miller's Deer Tracking. And Robert and I have talked on, you know, through, well, we've actually talked on the phone. We've talked through mess, Messenger some. Um, and it's really intrigued me some of the things that he's doing, uh, that he's done. And we're going to go through a whole um, array of things today. We're going to talk about the dogs that he started with, which I was very interested in. The dogs that he has now why the switch um, he's using one of the products that our sponsor uh, used that that he's talked to our sponsor about and we really want to get down and talk about that and then we're going to talk about some things that that him and I have talked about training wise um, problem solving and seeing how it's working out so this is basically just a follow-up for me with Robert um, Robert's up in Michigan I'm gonna let him introduce himself and tell you so I don't I don't make it wrong so, Robert, I really appreciate you taking your time out of your day, sit down and talk with us, and just tell us a little bit about you, where you live, what you do, and then we'll get into the dogs, because that's what we love. Sounds good. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Obviously, I'm a huge fan and supporter of the Houndsman XP. Uh, located in southern Michigan, uh, my occupation is shop maintenance, welder. Been doing that for going on 30 years now. Um, uh, going on my 16th season of tracking wounded deer with dogs and, um, family man of four children, married my high school sweetheart and life is great. 
Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> so sure. your kids, oldest and youngest. Oldest 23. Then I have, uh, she's a girl. Then I have a son at 21. And then boy, girl, twins at 20. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my, my oldest is 24, just turned 24 in August. And my youngest is 14. So I have a 10 year gap there. And it's funny. I know I've said it before on, on the podcast, but so my son, like he would hunt a little bit, but you know, this was dogs were definitely not his thing. Um, he was more into the farming part with his granddad, spent a lot okay. of time with his granddad farming, you know, he, he buys and sells cattle and that's what he loves to do on the, on the side. He is in law enforcement too. Now my daughter, like, and I talked about it uh, on a previous podcast, like she's all about the dogs and I don't care mm-hmm. if I, if I take 14 mile steps in the woods, she's with me every way, every bit of the way. And like it's really been um i don't want to use the word joyful but like it warms my heart oh absolutely that she spends as much time with me as she does doing what i love to do and she enjoys it as much as i do yeah we we'd all appreciate that as a father or even a mother but um my youngest daughter, she's she's just now starting to get into fishing, and I took her fishing a little bit this summer. Fishing's probably my number one passion. Mm. Uh, then her brother, which is a twin, he's dibbled a little bit with the tracking. He's did a little bit of training. He's taken sergeant tracking uh, times when I can't get out of work or whatever and made some recoveries. And my uh, older son, he's just a huge sports guy, played sports his whole life, played college sports. Now he's coaching sports. And then my oldest daughter, um, she is now nothing to do with the outdoors. Absolutely not. Mm. But she's now a flight attendant and, and being very successful. So got to be happy for all that. She likes to fly that much, huh? Yeah. Love to travel the world. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the that's the positive out of that. But golly, jeez, I hate, I hate flying. I hate it. <laughs> I mean, I have, yeah. to, I have to make myself do it. And I don't even like to do that. Yeah. Yeah, she loves it. Yeah. So, well, Robert, tell us a little bit about your tell us a little bit about your dog. How you got started in dogs to start with? And fi- wait, well, I'm wait back up. Hold on. Fishing. Okay. What kind of fishing do you like to do? Well, originally started fishing with my grandpa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I my parents lived in Texas, and and when I was in third grade, I got shipped up to Michigan as the transition moving back to Michigan. So I spent the entire summer with my grandpa. He's the one that got me into fishing. Sounds like your boy with his granddad, but mm-hmm. so at that time it was bluegill fishing and cause everything my grandpa fished, we ate. So we targeted bluegills, but as I got older, I got into bass fishing. I tried doing the bass fishing tournament stuff. Wasn't very successful at it. So then after I switched to that, I switched into basically river fishing. I really love wading rivers, navigating the river system and catching walleye, pike, bass, pretty much anything in the river systems. Then as I got older, uh, the wife and I started traveling to Florida, and boy, I got hooked into that saltwater shore fishing, surf fishing. So when I can do it, if I had a choice, I'd be surf fishing in Florida. It'd be my my number one for fishing. Well, I I, I enjoy it when we go to the beach. You know, I do that a lot. Um, And I have some friends that actually the retired retired canine guys, that's kind of what they do. They live in Florida. They've worked in Florida, and they love it. So... Yeah, fishing is one of the things that when it gets hot here in the summertime, I, I spend a quite a bit of time fishing. 
and of course we have rivers so i've got yeah. we've got the new river that runs pretty much through here um it's a great fishery and uh, the bass are like it's growing it's not as good as it was when i was a kid but man it's growing back i caught some i caught some hogs this spring um you know some four right at four and five pounders wow. which for us that's yeah. good yeah that's good for here too and then um and smallmouth that's smallmouth not largemouth and okay. um <clears throat> muskies is you know i love to fish for muskie they're so hard to catch and challenging and um yeah but anyway yeah the have fishing you, have you thought about making the trip up to fish lake st Clair for muskie you know some guys down here that guide they do that every year they have a tournament they go up for that tournament i have it has been in the back of my mind but i have not done it for sure you need to do it you need to do it it's world class yeah yeah and the, and the smallmouth fishing is world class in the lake but i know i know i know how much you like the muskie fish and you come to the st Clair lake st Clair and it is i don't think it gets any better to be honest with you in the united states yeah so robert so what got you into the dogs or what got you into tracking um okay yeah so growing up uh my parents were always members of an archery club traditionally uh traditionally traditional hunting is what we predominantly did so as i got into the age of bow hunting i was out there with a long bow and i hate to admit it but i, I wounded a few deer in my day mm -hmm. and that always just really ate at me we, we'd you know get the search party out get the lanterns out and We'd go into your was physically exhausted and, and you couldn't find the deer. In the back of my mind, I always wondered if that deer made it or not. And back in those days, we didn't have trail cameras. You didn't know which deer you had on your property. You just went and hunted and, and you just did your best. So as I kept getting older and older and older, I switched from traditional to compounds. You know, I wanted to get the sights because, again, I hated wounded deer. I just drove me crazy. I could shoot 3D targets all day long. But boy, when that buck came in front of me, I would shake me out of the tree and I would, I would, I would botch my shot. And it got to the point where I finally had a mature target buck in front of me, caught me by surprise, made the shot, hit where I unfortunately aimed, which was the shoulder with a bow. Arrow only went in maybe three inches. He spun off. And man, I spent three days searching for a deer that was what I know now is still alive. And I... After that time, uh, when, I, when I wounded that deer, I was searching for tracking dogs. And how I came about tracking dogs was John Genanay out of New York. There was a publication in Peterson's Bowhunt Magazine about his wire hair dash hounds, mm -hmm. and they're used for, uh, for game recovery. So at that time, we had no social media, no Facebook, no nothing. So I just started calling archery shops to see if anybody knew anybody. And Heath, there was nobody at that time in Michigan doing it. So the great way for me to, to fall into that passion is the time my family was very young. All my, my children were two or three years old. And I told the wife, let's get a family pet. And I want to get a dash hound. And I want to try to figure out how to track deer with it. So that's really where it started. So at the time, I got a hold of uh, the Geninays. There was a big waiting list. Waiting list. You had to be vetted for a dog, and to be truthful, I couldn't afford one of their dogs. It was pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. So I just started uh, going to the newspaper, found some dash hounds in the newspaper. No, 
pedigree far as hunting or show dogs. They were just puppies and, and wanting to go to a good home. So I took one of these dogs and it was actually a straight natural tracking dog. I put on some deer hoof scent and that dog followed it to the T no matter where it went. And so at that point, I just started putting some flyers out in some bow shops and grocery stores. And my first year, I think I went on six calls. Mm -hmm. That was it. Uh, we found one deer. And it's been growing ever since that day. So when <clears throat> you started out, and I know that we talked about John um, and how the dogs were overseas. And then when he passed, did... Um, the dog that you started with is that the same line of dogs you're still using nope so the dog i started with was a miniature dash hound mm -hmm. it was a long hair chocolate and tan probably weighed 15 pounds as as that dog got older i quickly realized long hair and a tracking dog is not a good combination i'd be getting in from tracking and the wife and i would be picking briars and pickers out of that poor dog Eventually, we just had to start shaving them because it was just so bad. So as Scout got older, I, I realized I needed a more specialty breed. I needed a dog that had higher prey drive. More hard-headed is more what I wanted. This dog was pretty soft. Uh -huh. So I started doing some research, and I located a breeder out of North Carolina. Her name is Sean Quaw, and boy, does she have some elite smooth coated dash hounds um she's very good with genetics she matches the lineages up she matches certain dogs characters to other dogs characters to get exactly what she's wanting out of the dogs and so i ended up picking up a dog named cypress she's probably what made me legendary in the state of michigan and maybe even some other states they know about this dog uh she has since passed away she passed away at 11 years old um Cypress was about a 22-pound, 23-pound smooth coat, and boy, was she gritty. This dog had more fight in her than I could handle for a couple of years, and it was too much for me in the time being. I've actually called the breeder back up and had conversations like, hey, I'm not sure this dog is cut off for tracking deer. This thing wants to kill coons. It'll, it'll, it'll take on the biggest dog in the neighborhood. It didn't care. It was just full grit. And Sean just kept talking to me and guiding me and mentoring me and really educating me on how to handle this type of tool that I had. Coming from the miniature pet that I had to this, went from driving a Chevette to a Ferrari is how it felt for me. And it took about three seasons behind that dog to fully trust that dog. And ultimately, I was that dog's worst enemy as a bad handler. I, I didn't know how to handle that dog. That mm -hmm. dog was 100% accurate. And I'd be sitting behind that dog, joysticking it, not trusting her. And, and until one day I finally, like, you know what, I'll follow you to the end of the earth. And we'll see what's at the end of it. And she took me on like a mile and a half track. And then we found the, we found the deer dead. And right then it was a huge educational point for me as a handler to trust the dog. And then, man, we went on years and years and years of finding 50, 60 deer every season with that dog. So when you said your first year, you found six or had six calls and one deer, was that disappointing or did you say, okay, this is where I'm starting? How did, how did you tweak your, your game from that starting point? It, the only frustrating part was not getting calls, but at that point, no one knows about dogs. No one even knew that it was legal mm -hmm. to track. 
they, they, they passed it in the late 80s in the state of Michigan to make it legal to track deer, and the dog had to be on a leash. And then um, I think I, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he, he had a, a radio station here in Michigan. He's no longer on, but he actually got wind of it, and, and we had a good conversation. So year two, that got put out there, and I think I went on that next year. I went on 50 calls, and we found 23 deer. Mm-hmm. So I was batting just, just shy of 50% on year two. And then after that, I think it was shortly after that, social media started coming in, had MySpace, things like that nature. And once social media really got going, Heath, it has exploded. Tracking dogs have exploded in almost in every state that it's legal. Mm -hmm. And it's never been a problem since then to get calls. It's just trying to get um, a good dog to be hunt, you know, track with. And what was the the draw? Because in my mind, like – why a why a dash hound? What was it that drew you to that other than the article in in Peterson's magazine? Like what was it about the smaller, you know, built dog to to go that route? Great question. Very nice. I'll just say I had no idea what I was doing. I had, I'm not. I never grew up with uh, hound dogs. Never grew up with hunting dogs. I simply took an article. They use dash hounds. I figured it's working for them. It'll work for me. Um, small dog worked out for, I, I lived in a small house at the time, had four kids at the time. So the small dog really fit my family values. And it worked good as a pet because in all reality, Heath, you get this puppy, you don't know if this puppy is going to turn onto a hunting dog or not. <laughs> so right. my end goal was I need a family pet first. And if it works out to be a tracking dog, that's just a bonus. And thankfully, it was a bonus. And since then, uh, you know, that's why I went to the bigger dash hound because the call volume started coming in. I needed a dog that can handle the workload that I was putting on that dog. And that's why I went with the standard size dash hound. And now today, fast forward again, I, I moved to a larger breed. And the reason for that transition was... I started finding a lot of deer that were alive. Hmm. And when I had a live deer in front of me, uh, at the time, the leash laws means the dog had to be on a leash. We simply could never catch up to these, these deer that were running ahead of us. So when I had the dash on, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd jump the client's deer. All right, let's uh, assess the situation and realize how much time we need to back out and come back in later. And where the bigger dog, my thought was, well, maybe I can just put my, my Nikes on and just start running these deer down. So that's what we tried doing. Right. And the bigger dog was more successful or it not, maybe not successful, but it made the, the task easier. Which one? It, it was once that dog got trained, the task was 1000% easier. Uh, the, the struggles I had again was I went from a 20 pound wiener dog to a, 50 pound medium sized dog and the way that dog tracked versus the way the dash on tracked again i was back novice with that i could not read that dog i couldn't understand that dog's head its tail i couldn't understand anything it was doing so i went back to like a complete green handler again knowing not trusting that dog for again a couple years Mm -hmm. so once i had to learn how that dog followed scent trails I, I was considered a new tracker again. I, I was back fish out of water trying to learn how to track deer with another dog. So 
what I learned with that dog was that dog's a trailing dog. It doesn't follow hoof to hoof scent <laughs> like my wiener dogs. They follow the track exact. No matter where that track went, them wiener dogs never left it. Where Sergeant, he his breed is a Slovakian Kopov. And for your listeners, it's the national breed of hound of Slovakia. It's a boar dog, similar to a cur dog, a blue lacy dog, kind of that size frame dog. But it's a very fast, highly intelligent, and agile breed. And it's not a breed that's made to be t- put on a leash, I'll tell you that much. It's not. It, it, it did not like being on a leash. So... Now, we, guess it's kind of that, where that's at. Well, you brought up, like, so you've peaked a couple questions here. So, with your okay. dash hounds, were you running him in a harness or off a, off a collar? I started on a harness. Uh-huh. And I did the harness because I was worried about the dog's neck. Mm-hmm. Then I realized the harness was causing the dog to overheat. Yep. So, then I went to a two-inch wide harness, or a collar on her neck to... to, to when the dog would dive into the collar, it wouldn't put pressure on the, the esophagus, mm-hmm. cut her breathing out. So I, I finished her career out using a two-inch wide Amish-made leather collar for her. And when I switched to the, the Slovakian Kopov breed, I went back to a harness. And because, boy, this dog pulled, it pulled my arms right off my sockets. And that worked good for a while. Again, the harness, the issue I had to harness was overheating. The dogs kept overheating with the harnesses I had on them. Mm-hmm. And so I switched to the two-inch wide collar, and I ran the leash underneath the dog so it came through its legs. So when it pulled up tight, the, the leash was up under its crotch region. And that's how I handled that dog. That allowed me to slow the dog a little bit. That allowed me to keep the dog's head down because he was not a head-down dog. He was a head high. He wanted his head high as he mm-hmm. could get it in the air. And I struggled with that. I was so used to watching a dog nose in the dirt. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to run it this way, get the head down. And I'll be honest with it. It made it all worse. That dog did not like tracking that way. Mm-hmm. I forced that dog to track that way, but <clears throat> I created more issues than it did resolving them. Right. Yeah. And like, so the harness and I, I just, uh, I just finished up a school for a detection and tracking guy like literally just finished it up yesterday and you know we were talking about equipment and a lot of my patrol guys they have the 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 bulletproof or the cut proof the kevlar vest that they run on their dogs i don't i have one but like in the heat and stuff i just i don't run it um and i try not to put my dog in a situation that then I need that too because I'm just sending him into a suicide mission. Right. But when you talk about the harness, um, and I'm talking about my the law enforcement side for me at this right this point, um, like the harness that I'm running on Pino is a um, uh, it's a storm canine storm, and it's basically uh, just a V down to his chest, a single strap, and then straps around to the back with the um, the buckle on it it's is it takes up nothing like nothing and some in fact if you're not looking at it you don't even sure he has one on but i don't want to overheat or constrict my dog any more than i have to um and i've changed several times throughout my career you know i've went from the the big bulky ones to the the medium ones and they didn't sit right or they didn't they would always pull the side or pull around um and then i got 
I got a harness from Jeff Shetler and that harness worked really, really well. And I use that or the, the canine storm depends on what I'm doing. But if, but because Pino's in the patrol function, I can use the storm, um, harness for multiple applications, not just tracking, but back to the collar part is when I spend time with the Dutch guys, which I have quite a bit over the last, well, six, seven years, you know, they believe they don't use harnesses. They use the flat collar and they believe that your dog should work in a collar. And if you want to use a harness, fine. But what happens if you don't have it and the dog don't want to work? So they switch. They said that I should be able to track in a harness or a flat collar. Just what you you were doing, which I can. I can yeah. put Pino on a flat collar and take off. And if I do, I don't do it to pull his head down. But Pino pulls so hard that I will run the, the line right up under his front right leg. Um, just to slow him down a tad. Not, okay. not, not so much to to pull his head down because i don't want him to work that way um, yeah but i've learned to operate both both things so what you're saying is like i completely understand the philosophy and the mentality behind it so so like so when the dog overheats as you obviously know when the dog's panting it's not smelling and not smelling as well i don't know the exact percent i've heard 30 percent 40 percent scent reduction Regardless, I don't want any reduction. I want that nose at 100% power the whole time we're in the woods. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I had a dog that would dive into his harness and, and kept a real taunt line, I would use a harness. But I've never had a dog that's able to successfully do that and then deal with the navigation of swamps, cattail marshes, timber, briars. So I've never had a dog that would dive into the, or the harness like Sarge did I paid the price for it as a handler dragging behind it. Mm -hmm. Either I'd be too close to the dog and the dog would be checking and turning, or I'd be too far back and the leash would be catching on stuff. It was just an absolute nightmare. So that's where I switched over to the collar. And, and I, 90% of the time, I just allowed that leash to drag and I stayed with that leash just in case I had to step on it for whatever reason to stop that dog. But ultimately I trained that dog to, work naturally as the dog wanted to follow that scent trail and i like to call it i was just a dog walker i was just a dummy on, on the end of the leash i just followed the dog at that point and my job was to make sure my dog was <clears throat> not trashing on stuff and and obviously and not chasing game because again the laws in michigan means the dog has to be on a leash so i kind of did push the gray area because nowhere did our literature say the leash had to be in the handler's hand mm-hmm so I talked to a couple conservation officers and they said, Robert, you're definitely pushing the gray area, but we, we understand the things you're dealing with. They just said, just make sure dogs are not out there hunting deer and, and, and doing things it's not supposed to be doing and we'll have no problems. And I've done that for a decade and it's never been an issue. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I mean, I know, <clears throat> I mean, I'm hunt. I mean, of course we get into some thick areas hunting, hunting man. Um, but for the most part, not always, but 60, 70% of the time, a man's going to take the, the path of least resistance. You are in, in, in the woods, and I mean, I, I know where I bear hunt and where I get. I mean, how do you keep, I was going to ask you, how hard do they track? Like, uh, like Pino, I can slow him down, but 
Like it's a handful. I go through a mm-hmm. pair of gloves about every three months if I'm tracking hard because he he pulls it. He he, I get I get holes in them. I mean he just pulls that hard. Yeah. So, you know, the first question is how hard do they track? Can you kick? Can you keep up with them at a steady walk? And like how how do they navigate? How do you guys as a team navigate the thick underbrush and and what what you're just saying? So, great question. So, let's go back to the dash hound. The dash hound was blessing because the dash hound would track at, at a walking pace. And the dash hound, the drawback to the dash hound was sometimes she would go through areas I couldn't fit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And she would just dip underneath, the, you know, let's say, a, you know, a briar patch and go right through where I had to walk around it. So, I would drop the 30-foot leash, get around as fast as I could, and then catch back up to her. So the dash hound took me through what I call rabbit holes all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how he navigated that. And then the big dog, instead of going under stuff, he liked to jump over stuff. So here again, if it went over a big log, he would just jump the log and I'd be trying to, you know, slow him down, trying to get over it. And I never wanted to stop the dog from its, its pace. Mm-hmm. I, I never want, like if the dog wants to track at three miles an hour, we went at three miles an hour. If it wanted to go at 10, we went at 10. And there's a lot of people that say, Rob, you should be controlling your dog's pace. It could be true. But for me, I like to, go, I like to keep up the way how my dog works. <clears throat> I don't want to manipulate that in any way. So GPS collars came in, getting them e-collar trained. So if for some reason that dog is going beyond my abilities, I just give the dog a little beep and, and he would stop and check back in. And then I'd catch back up and we'd, re, we'd keep resuming at that point. Yeah, and when I first learned tracking in the law enforcement side, I was taught that way. You grab a hold, and we were using a 15-lead foot lead then, and I was told to hold on and don't slow the dog down. That's how, what I was, and I had a lab that actually sprinted. And yeah. how I didn't get ambushed or get myself in a situation that I couldn't get out of is beyond me, but okay. I, I didn't, <laughs> thank the Lord. Yeah, thankfully, yeah. thankfully, yeah. And, um course now we've changed our method and like i i do control the i can have pino especially if i'm running with a tack team i can down him and hold him up i don't like to hold him up for long because the more the longer it is the distraction becomes greater and greater and greater and it's hard to get him back on task but yeah i can down him for a minute maybe two minutes is where i'd like to be i don't like i don't like to be over one minute let everybody get caught up catch your breath and let's move um and i just tell him to get back to work boom he goes right back into tracking profile i did not yeah. think that was possible until uh, until jeff showed me that yes you can do this um mm-hmm. so we had to tweak ours of course we don't want to run up on an ambush it's kind of different a little bit different than what what you guys are doing but yeah i understand okay. that and i was taught that you know the same thing is go go just go with your dog whatever your dog's doing go with it yeah I I had a situation where we jumped the deer and I picked the dog up and left. It was was with Cypress. She was about three years old and the deer was stomach shot, needed more time. So we came back 12 hours later, Heath, and I put her back down and told her to track. She wouldn't do it. Hmm. I worked her, worked her, worked her, could not do it. So I eventually started eye tracking this particular deer myself while she was involved. And then after a good two, three hundred yards, 
she started tracking again. And we ended up finding the deer all as well. But it really bothered me why we left and came back and she wouldn't resume tracking. And the only logical thing I can have in my head is at one point I told her no. I picked her up. I took mm. her away from the scent trail. So that really set hard in my mind. Like if I'm joysticking the dog with the leash, I mean, don't like saying, Hey, we need to go left. We need to go right. Or let's stop. Let's go forward. I could be telling the dog some wrong things. So that's why I always say if the dog's locked down the scent trail, I'm just staying at, at that dog's pace. Um, and then as the dogs get older, you can definitely get away with bad handling, bad communication. The dog's very forgiving for that. But a young dog, it really paid the price for me on all the dogs, actually, all the dogs I've ever trained. Once I intervened with that dog's track, it, it took a little while to get that dog back focused. Yeah, but didn't you make the right decision by not pushing, you know, a gut of deer? Like, I would have done the exact same thing. We made the right decision, but the dog don't know that. Right. Yeah. Here that deer that deer jumps up in front of that dog and that dog's ready to go. It's here's my prize and here's a chase. Chase is exciting for a dog. Mm-hmm. So at that point the dog was ready to go and, and not ready to leave and, and ultimately um have is a learning curve. Have you tried and I how do you how do you reward the dog at the end? Like what is the reward for the dog once they find a game? Is it food, toy, or is it the animal itself? It's the animal itself. Mm-hmm. Have all you, my all my dogs have enjoyed um pulling hair they mm-hmm. like to go to the rear end and pull a hair uh sergeant's trademark is he chews the tail right off and he'll actually eat the whole tail mm. he likes that cart the, the the cartilage in it and, and he chews a tail um but yeah i've never i've never used food or a toy once they found the live game if we don't if we, i'm not sure to say live game but just the deer but if if let's say we go on a track and we come up unsuccessful all I do is just get down on my hands and knees and have a have a human conversation with a dog and, and tell them how proud I am and, and lots of petting and patting on the head and just say we'll go on to the next one. Yeah. Have you thought of, and I'm just food for thought here because we've run into some of this. It's kind of funny how your world and my world are so similar, but yet so different. Um, we had, to, we took a, a period in our, tracking with the last group of guys that i've had and i've got pretty much new guys now and we would do the exact same thing you would just did we would get in close to the to the the hide and we would pull the dog off and have another dog come in and finish the track but we we were we the comp what we were trying to accomplish was is a two dog system because we need that we may you know the dogs may gas they may be worn out whatever we were trying to do that but what we did is the exact same thing you're saying is you pull the dog off of the track um kind of hurts her feelings so i contacted my buddy in florida jeff barrett who we've had on the podcast and said jeff hey i need to break my tracks up into mini tracks and pull the dog off what do you think so he said hey Heath, this is what we do we do the exact same thing and we went through this regiment and um we just started doing a different reward system for that to let the dog know okay you're good you've done exactly what we can do we're just not going to find that person today or this hour or whatever um so we started incorporating multiple mini tracks so we'd track 
500 yards, the track would be a mile long. My, my portion of the track would be five, six, seven hundred yards, whatever. Then I would pull my dog off, and then you would come in behind me and start where I, I stopped and picked up, and you would pull your dog off, and we just kept rotating that. And it took us, I don't know, three or four training sessions um, over a period of three to four months of doing that, and it never seemed it it never seemed to bother him after that. I don't know if that's okay. something that you could train, but it's just food for thought. I, like I said, I'm I'm not in your world. I don't know, but like you gotta you have to pull the dog off a a, a jumped animal, right? Yeah, certain yeah. cases you have to. Yeah, so I don't know. Just something to think about. We we started doing that unintentionally, and then that's what come out of it and our, of course our well, fine ratio is nowhere near what yours is either like yeah we don't find humans every time yeah what what prevented the dog from backtracking that from that new dog coming in and starting where you left off what prevented the backtrack um basically we started them in the same direction like and we really didn't you know i can't really say that we had a dog that Nothing sticks out in my mind where a dog wanted to come in and backtrack because we would come in and say, well, we would still be standing there with our dog. And, you know, guy would come in and be like, okay, this is the last place I had to track. And I was headed in this direction. And we would, you know, kind of give them the why. Like, right here's the why, the funnel yeah. point. And then they would just cut, cut, cut the track and go. Um, I don't remember ever having to work, work a backtracking problem. Now the dogs did pay attention to where the dogs stopped, like they would go and you know you know how they work around and whatever. Yeah. Um, but I don't recall. Like I said, I don't recall having to to work out a backtracking issue. Okay. I was just sitting there thinking, what if a situation where you stopped and that human decided to kind of V back away, mm -hmm. and that dog comes in and and you you've already kind of pointed its direction. So for us, when I come into a shot site. I kind of bring the dog in, make sure the dog is upwind of the shot site so the dog can't smell what what I want it to eventually smell. Mm -hmm. And then after the dog calms down from a two or three minute hold, and I do a two, three minute hold for one reason, two reasons, I should say. It calms the dog down. Two, when a dog sits in the same spot for a few minutes, it actually clears out its palate. It clears we, out of the olfactory. You know what we call so, that? What? Scent inventory. Okay. There yeah. you go. There you go. So yeah. when the dog's sitting there, it, it, it kind of takes everything in, and yep. then it kind of clears itself out, and then the first initial bam of scent will be the target scent. Mm hmm But I always tell the hunter, don't tell me which way your deer went. I want my dog to circle in the roundabout area, and then once my dog gets going and we start leaving, go ahead and holler at me, yeah, you're right, or yeah, you're wrong. And that's kind of a one way I can build the trust with my dog, but also build trust with my customers knowing, yeah, this dog is knowing what it's doing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I definitely, I definitely need to incorporate. I've never incorporated the whole stop start during my training. I've never once ever in all the years doing it. I've always just kind of, I guess, learned on the fly when the, the situation happened. But yeah. It's a good point. It's something I definitely should try to do. Yeah. Just something to think about. And you know, I, yeah. it, it took us, it took us a couple months to, to get it down. And but like I said, we were, we'd be track. We, we've been on several multi-day man hunts and, you know, especially when it's hot and humid down here. I mean, you can, I mean, you can't, you can get 
you know, three quarters of a mile out of some of our dogs. Some of our dogs go a mile and a half. Um, is kind of their threshold. Uh, so we, we had to start incorporating something to help. Like we've got, yeah. five, we've got 12 dogs available. How do we work this out? And that was just kind of what we did. So the journey on Houndsman XP has teamed up with one TDC. This dual action support for oral health and mobility in our dogs. This unique supplement is so effective that it is recommended by top veterinarian experts worldwide to maintain and improve our dog's health in four different areas. Their oral health, hips, joints, and muscles, skin, coat, energy, and recovery. Guys, I've been using this product for the last six months, and it has been a game changer for me. If you're looking for something to help with the overall health of your dog, go to worksowell.com and give this product a try. It is highly recommended by Houndsman XP here on The Journey. Do you like to be outside like I do? Hunting, fishing, hiking? If so, Onyx is the app for you. I've been a loyal Onyx user for years. It's the one app that I can honestly say I use daily. While hunting, I know where I'm at at all times. I mark trails, bedding areas, feeding areas, and the list goes on. In my travels, I use it to pre-scout all the new places that I am blessed to hunt. Last year while hiking Yellowstone, I used Onyx to map out the trails and know the difficulty of each one. And here's a secret. I mark all of my favorite fishing spots on Onyx. It's been a game changer for me at work. I've used it multiple times to get in touch with property owners. Onyx has so many great features and tools, you can literally use it in your everyday life. It is, by far, the best mapping app on the market. And hey, it's approved by yours truly at Houndsman XP. So when you go to subscribe to Onyx, use our code HXP20 and get you a discount. So get your journey started with Onyx and know where you stand. Um, yeah, and, and, and you know, it's, val it's a valid strategy, especially when the state requires a dog to be on a leash. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he, we, we just finally got it passed in the state of Michigan. We can run our dogs off leash now on GPSs. So if we now have that jump say liver stomach shot deer that's is going septic and, it, and it's very weak and it's but it's still moving i can just have my dog run up there now and and, and catch that deer and bay it up and have the hunter dispatch it mm -hmm. or a broken leg deer a broken leg deer is not a deer you want to pull off and, and give it more time so now in the past literally he's i've had a one situation we had a broke leg deer it took us four miles to get that deer to finally give up Hmm. where it finally kept running and jumping on us and then we were able to dispatch it but now with a broke leg deer sergeant he can run 25 miles per hour so a three-legged deer that's crippled he can have that deer stop within a couple hundred yards easily mm -hmm. so the whole stop start situation may not be that important the time i see it would be important if we come to a property line where we have to stop and go get permissions then we may have to back out you know drug get in the vehicles go find landowners then come back so it's going to happen again, but I don't see it happen as, as often as it was. Right. Got it. So let's, let's talk about Sergeant and the injury that he's got and what you're doing to work on that. Because I thought this, uh, Olivier was with me at 
or with me and Chris at Autumn Oaks, and we talked about that. And you know, he told me that he had talked to you, and of course, you told me that he got back with you. Tell us about that injury and what you're doing, and what what kind of progress are you seeing, if any? Yeah. So the injury caught me by surprise. Uh, Sergeant's now eight years old. The breed again is as a Slovakian Kopov. So the back history in the breed, it's actually Austria. Um, Austria's black and tan hound mixed with the dash hound is how this breed was developed. So Sergeant has a longer body than most dogs. His legs are not as tall as, as your, your most of your black and tans or medium-sized dog. He's kind of, if you've seen him in person, you would think he's just a ginormous wiener dog with tall legs. That's how he looks. Mm-hmm. So at the time, until just recently, I never realized they had the back issues. Um, as now Sarge has it, I'm doing more and more research and find out people are having this. But ultimately, I took the dogs for our, our afternoon run like I normally do. I mean, I free cast them in the woods, just allow them to go be dogs. We go do two, three, four miles. We got back. In this particular time, I had Sergeant sitting in the front seat of my, my Toyota. And I got out of the driver's door, was heading to the back to open the hatch to get my other dogs out. Well, Sergeant popped out of my driver's door. He yelped and he dropped right in the driveway and he started panting and i could tell he was in pain then at that point i let him sit there and he walked in the house completely hunched up his tail was straight down and the boy was just in excruciating pain i got him on some pain meds that i had in the house got him to the vet and the, and the vet took some x-rays and they, and they see he's got a bulging disc and ultimately you know anytime like we as humans you if you have a bad back it you just can't do nothing. It hurts. You don't want to do nothing. You don't want to move. Nothing. So that's when I reached out to you, mm-hmm. listen to the podcast. I listen to it literally almost every day. And you keep saying this one TDC, one TDC, one TDC. You know, it was just, and I said, man, this might be a great time to try this supplement out. So we had our conversation about it. And you told me, you know, the house, one dog, your older dog quickly recovered from it. How your one dog, that had the broken leg was recovered from it. Mm-hmm. And I thought at this point, I'm going to do anything I can possibly to, to help my dog. I don't care at what cost. It don't matter. So I purchased a product. I was not expecting Olivier to call me within hours of the purchase going through. He called me right up. Hey, Robert, thank you for the purchase. What's going on? So I explained it to him. He explained to me how I need to put it topically in the area of the injury he explained to me how I need to put topically to his gums so it uh, can absorb in the body really fast while taking the supplement orally. Um, for Sarge right now, we're doing it three times a day. And I will be honest with you, I, I, he's obviously on a steroid and an anti-inflammatory right now. He, he's on one month of anti-inflammatories and then a three-week process with the steroids of weaning off the steroids after week three. But I can tell you when the steroid wears off, I can tell his whole demeanor changes. But the one TDC, when I put it in on him, I'm telling you within five minutes of putting it back on him at three times a day, you can instantly tell it's it's giving pain relief. Mm-hmm. It's allowing him to move more freely. And it gets even crazier because I have a I have a bad knuckle on my hand. It's it, 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 every day it's killing me. 
I literally took one of those the the gels and I busted it open. I rubbed it on my own my my, my knuckle myself. And within five minutes, I was moving my knuckle complete in range of motion with no pain. And I told my wife this. I may even told you that. I told some, and everyone's kind of like, "That's a little BS," you know, like it's a little bit too good to be true. Well, my wife had a foot ache. I literally busted over the gel. I rubbed it on her foot. A few minutes later, I said, "Hey, baby, you know, how's your foot?" She goes, "It's not hurting no more." So topically, it does go right into the blood system. It gets right in there and gets right to where the injury is, and and it's helping. Now, I, it, you know, we're only three weeks into this. I don't know the long-term effects of the 1TDC, but I'm going to tell you firsthand right now, it's, it's helping my dog recover, and I'm hoping that he can stay on this product for the rest of his life, and I'm hoping that I can put him back into service, and we'll know this in about two more weeks, and I go back and see my vet to see if I get the all-clear to, to put him back to work. And I, I plan on using it throughout. If he's able to go back to work, Heath, I plan on keep putting it on him in his mouth. I'm going to put it on his joints topically. I'm going to sort of keep doing it to, to allow him to recover and hopefully prevent any more future injuries. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I have not used the human version. And at Autumn Oaks, Olivier gave me a – so Maddie broke her ankle in volleyball, and she had just got out of the boot and was walking. So Olivier gave me a, the, the sample pack. And we went back to the to the house that evening, and she put it on her ankle. And I, I same thing. We we eat and was sitting around, and I was like, "Well, how's your?" And she goes, "Well, it feels okay." And I'm like, "Well, was it hurting?" And she goes, "Yeah, all the walking gets it really stiff." She goes, yeah. "It's not stiff right now." Yeah. So she started. She's using it every day. So that you know, it's been a couple two weeks ago, I guess. We could yeah, two weeks ago. She's been using yep. it every day. Well, yesterday. I walked off the mountain, off the north, and it kills my legs. It's steep. It kills my knees. So I got home last night, and I'm like, I'm going to try this. <laughs> so anyway, I put it on myself, and I mean, it had the menthol smell to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the menthol. Um, and I will say probably, you know, of course, I was sitting on the couch. When I got up to go to bed, my legs didn't hurt like they didn't hurt. So yeah. I don't know what it is about it, but the human part surprised me. And, you know, I'm still giving it to my dogs. Um, right now I'm running. I've, I've run every day this week and I'm, you know, they, they're getting, every one of them's getting two capsules a day because I've already loaded them. I loaded them back when season started. So, but I like the yeah. product and it, I have seen results. Um, I can't say I mean, I would never say that it's a miracle thing, but it, like, I'm seeing enough results to keep me buying it and using it. Well, he also sent me a two-ounce sample of the human-grade stuff. Mm -hmm. And my, my son, Aiden, which I told you, he's, he's dibbled a little bit about the track, and he's had two meniscus injuries on his right knee. So we got it in, and I said, hey, how's your knee feeling? He said, oh, it's hurting. I said, hey, let's try it out right now. He put it on there. I'm telling you, within five minutes, he said the pain was gone. Hmm. It's, it's God's honest truth. It's it, like I said, long term, I don't know what it does, right. but it sure helps with pain relief, and and I'm a firm believer in it, and it's going to continue being in my house. Yep. Well, good. I'm glad that that we were able to get you put in the right direction, and 
Uh, Olivier is good people. I mean, it's oh, like he's for good anyone people. To call, for anyone to call, he genuinely cares. Yep. There's no other no other word is he genuinely cares. Then he even went one step further and got me in contact. I, I'm not going to try to pronounce her name. I'll just call yep. her Dr. T. Yep. Um, and, the physical and got therapist. got in conversation with her. What's yeah. that? The, the animal physical therapist. Yes. Yep. So mm-hmm. we had a FaceTime uh, evaluation, and she gave me some amazing tips, some home treatments, even some dietary type things to supplement feeding, adding eggs with the shells to my dog's food, and things I've never thought of feeding my dog uh, a hard-boiled egg, including the shell. Mm-hmm. And she was saying the membrane in the shell, it just adds so much vitamins and stuff to your dog's healing process. Um, so we've incorporated that into my feeding now. Mm-hmm. Farm fresh eggs. So it was an amazing conversation, very helpful, and it's only done possible because how much he cares about about, uh, about the Houndsman XP listeners, about dog owners. He's, he's a incredible man. Yep, absolutely. So let's sh- shift gears real quick. Um, right. I know, like I said, you and I have talked a couple times. What is one of the things that you've taken from the podcast, training-wise, that you have incorporated and you're seeing a result that you want to see? So what I've taken from the podcast mostly was about scent. Mm. How scent works, how weather affects scent, how... Because we as humans, we can't smell like a dog can smell. So we, we like to think of what scent can do, where it can go. But boy, until you actually listen to some of the, the your guests on your show with years and years and years of experience and then back with science, it's mind-blowing of how weather affects scent and then how I incorporate that into when I take a certain, you know, when I take a track. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I lay a training track, when I run the dog on the training track, all that now plays a major role into how successful I am as a trainer, how successful I am in as a tracker, far as the hunter standpoint. Um, you know, Chris, Chris has said how many times going down the road, Coon runs across the track. <laughs> he wants to dump the box. Yep. Then the old timer's like, nope, we got to let that scent rest. We got to mm-hmm. let that scent do what the scent does with the atmosphere mm-hmm. so the dog can be successful. So if you don't understand scent and you're a houndsman, boy, you got a lot to learn. Yeah. As soon as you learn part of it, I don't think we'll learn all of it, but if you can learn most of it, your dog's going to be way more successful. You're going to be happy as a houndsman. You're going to be happy as a trainer. That's what I got most out of the, out of the Hounds of XP podcast is is the episodes you guys had about scent. It's um, you know for an example, let's say it's 90 degrees out and a hunter shoots a deer and that deer runs off and it's a high pressure day, we automatically going to know that's going to be a tough track, unless that scent trail has got tons of blood. But if it's a superficial wound on that animal and mm. that animal is really not that hurt. You're you're gonna be you're gonna be showing up to your dog and your dog might be looking back at you like there's nothing here to track. And yeah. I can't tell you how many times over the, the decade that's happened where I show up and the dog's looking at me like there's nothing here. So what do I do? I start eye tracking, I start following a blood trail. Next thing you know, we're we're out of the clover field and we're into the timber where there's shade. 
there's moisture, all of a sudden, Bam. boom, the dog's nose mm -hmm. all of a sudden wants to work. Yeah. And you're looking back at the hunter like, dude, I don't know why my dog was an idiot, but my dog's working now. Yep. End of the day, I was the idiot because I didn't know what I was putting my dog into. I set my dog up to fail right off the bat. <clears throat> Where if I'd have waited three, four more hours until sunset and then brought the dog in with the dew growing on the alfalfa or developing on the alfalfa and the sun's gone, the, the pressure's changing, the dog would have been way more successful. So to answer you that, that that's probably the, the number one thing was learning about scent. I knew a lot about scent through trial and error. But I didn't have the answers why I knew what I knew. Right. And that it, makes sense. Yeah. I'm going to give you two examples real quick of just two things you touched on. So my last training session, Monday before last, we actually did um, uh, road pickups. So I had my track layer uh, come in the end of the woods. They started a track in the woods. They made either a 90 or a 45 degree turn and they go up to the road and they would be picked up by a car. Okay. And so some of my younger guys have never seen this before. And I wished I would have had my GoPro on or my camera. I wished I would have videotaped some of this because 80% of the dogs would come up into the road. They'd go into perfect. They'd be in pro perfect profile. And I mean, they'd be tracking, they'd be tracking, they'd be tracking. They'd hit the road. And one, one of the, one of the tracks that I was speaking about specifically had six cars go up and down the road. So, you know what it was doing to that odor. Like it was blowing it this way, that way, up, down, sideways. So the dog comes up into the road, goes spastic from, from, I mean, from profile tracking to like, holy cow, what's going on up the road, down the road, back. But what really I really liked about this training experience for him is the dog run around for 30 seconds, 40 seconds, like a chicken with its head cut off. That was the perfect yeah. example. She goes back to the last place she had to track, which was coming up the bank into the road. And she started working it, working it, working it. And I'm like, okay, now you need to, to make sure that this track hadn't went down the road, up the road, cross the road. How are you going to handle this? So, Anyway, I had him make a 100-yard, take the dog, short lead it, walk down the side of the road, cross the road, walk back up the side of the road, pass 100 yards, and come back. When he got back to me, he goes, I don't have anything. I said, so what do you think happened here? Where'd they go? He goes, well, knowing you, they probably got picked up in a car. <laughs> and I said, that's exactly what happened. But you're talking about that odor and the coon crossing the road. Um, man, I love to watch my guys get... Um, bum fuzzled because it, it's so fun for me um yeah. but it is what it is and then we had a deployment um what, uh, somebody stole one of the ambulances at the hospital took off wrecked it same thing you just talked about he bailed out and run through a field hot 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 during the day um thank goodness a witness said that they seen him crossing a fence and going into a wood line so they tried okay. to start the track in the field yeah. No go. Not happening. No. Didn't it's impossible. Happen. They crossed the fence, and they could see where he crossed the fence. Like, he pushed the fence down. Okay. Got over, hit the wood line, dog goes into profile, goes to tracking. Of course, they knew this. They knew to not be discouraged, and once you got into the shade, they knew all the things that we're talking about. Um, 
But yeah, yeah. W- the stuff that you're talking about is, I mean, it's like, it's just the way things are. And if you understand it, you're a lot more successful. Yeah. One thing I learned is, is clover fields. What a nightmare clover fields are for us tracking deer. They're so filled with chlorophyll, the green plant. Mm-hmm. It totally eats up the scent. Mm. On top of it, you have the wide open wind beating on it. If you have a high pressure day, the sun's beating on it. I've came, to, we've tracked into clover fields and literally you think the deer just flew away. Yep. Then we have to do a complete perimeter search, yep. similar to like you had your guys do. Mm-hmm. But what I've also learned over the years, Heath, is a live healthy deer that hits a clover field has no problem going across it. Okay. But a deer that's dying, let's say a liver gut shot deer that needs 20 hours to die, he comes up to that clover field, he ain't crossing it. He's backtracking. He's double backing on us. Mm. And that double back could be 100 yards, could be 50 yards, it could be 10 yards, it could be a V-back. So you come into that clover field, and you're, and I already know dog ain't tracking it because of the conditions. Now, did the deer cross it? Did the deer double back? So I have to do a perimeter search, but I got to make sure I go far enough back on, on a, on a backtrack to cross off that opportunity. And, and these whitetails backtrack more than they'll cut across a wide open field because especially a big mature deer, he don't want to be seen anyways. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you talk about your guys' training. I, I wonder if you threw a backtrack on some of these guys that think the guy got in the car but actually, he just followed himself back 200 yards and then took off in a different way how they'd handle that. Well, I have actually done this. Um, some of our do- our, our pointers, because we ha- I have seven pointers in my group, the pointers are really bad about shortcutting the track. If you walk the, oh, tra- yeah. if you walk the track back and then cut off of it and go 50, 100 yards and hide, um, usually when you get to that back track where that, that track is parallel walking each other and it splits, they'll yeah. usually take the split. So you, so you'll never knew that they went that one way. Yeah. Not all of them, yeah. but, yeah. but five of the seven are hard, hard, hard to, to trick on the back tracks. Like, because right. they're head, they're, they're constantly head up, head up, head up. They're not staying in what we would visualize as a head down tail up shoulder level boom 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 tracking profile um they're they they're constantly bouncing 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 so they're they're hard they they do pretty well at that but i have tried that yeah so the same thing here the the dash hound will follow the track verbatim mm-hmm. wherever it went backtrack or not the sergeant he's he's more of a trailing dog like i explained i probably a deer probably double back on us i don't know how many times i never would know because he he already figured out he just cuts the corner Shorts and he keeps going yep same yeah. yeah well robert to finish this up tell me your most memorable track okay i, I gotta ask you a question do you want it to be a live deer or a dead deer i want it to be your most memorable track i don't care Heath, i got I, I gotta give you i'll give you can i give you two then yep I want to give you one dead, one alive. All right. So uh, let's start with the dead one. It's with Cypress, my dash hound. The deer was known liver gut shot with a, with a bow. The hunter has used myself before, so he knew exactly. Back out. Do not disturb the scent trail. Let's just call on the dog. 
We wait 24 hours to come in and trail this deer. We come in, start tracking it, and we track it, I believe, about a half mile to a, to a, a gravel road. Cypress gets on the gravel road, goes down the gravel road, maybe 100 yards or so. Now we're into a front yard of a residence. She tracks through the yard of the residence, goes along the house, really close to the house. And then behind the house has a man-made pond. She tracks down to the pond. She jumps in the pond. She circles around in the water, comes back to the shore. And, and she's just problem solving the shore, right? And, and she's like, she knows it went somewhere, but she can't figure it out. So I walk her around the pond. She gets around the, the other side of the pond. And boom, that nose back hits the ground. We track hundreds of yards more and we find the buck dead. Total distance was 1.18 mile. This deer was unpressured, but it still went over a mile. No one in their right mind, human-wise, would have found that whitetail. Never would have found it. Hence back to, like I told you back in my younger days as a bow hunter, and you get all your friends and family to go look, how many times do these deer just go beyond what we think a deer's capable of going? Mm -hmm. Dogs have proven to me whitetails are the strongest creature God's ever made, and they go much further than we can even imagine, and dogs have taught me this. Backstory to this deer after being recovered, Zach actually talked to the homeowner, and that deer was alive in their pond through the whole entire day. He shot in the evening. The following day, that buck was laying in that water all day. Mm. The residents thought the deer was just... It was hot out and he's sitting in the water. Didn't think nothing of it. Wasn't a, they're not hunters or nothing. So that person went to bed and that deer was still there, alive. We came in at the 24 hour mark and it was nighttime now. We found it dead and it was still rigor mortis hasn't set in yet. So we found it within a half hour, 45 minutes of it finally dying. Jaw wasn't locked up or nothing. So that's probably one of my most memorable with, with, with Cyprus. Now, fast forward again to last deer season with Sergeant. Same thing. We have a liver shot whitetail, and it's right during the heat of the rut. And a lot of people don't know about a rut, rut crazed whitetail is. They're, they are zombies. They literally, they're almost indestructible. They go, they don't feel pain. I don't know what's going on with them chemistry-wise, but they're not a normal deer. So this deer is also liver shot. And... Same thing, the customers used my services before, and we already know the deer's off the property. He's seen the deer run off the property. I said, well, uh, Mike, you gotta go get permissions from the landowner. So he starts door knocking, and everyone owns like five acres, five acres, five acres, five acres. So about the fifth or sixth property down the road, he talks to the wife, and the wife says, oh, my husband's actually hunting right now. As soon as he gets in, I'll let you know if you can come on our property. He calls back and they're talking with Mike and he says, that deer came by me at about 11 a.m. and I can see blood coming out of that whitetail. So we already know the deer has gone eight tenths of a mile from where this resident is, from where this deer is shot. We come in at the 12 hour mark. Heath, we tracked that deer 2.28 miles. Crossed, I think a total of 10 properties. Crossed in two different roads across two separate streams. Then we finally found that deer 
virtually lifeless, but he was still alive. He, he couldn't get up. And again, it goes back to how can a deer go two miles shot through it? And we had blood drops often enough that I kept finding with the dog. So I never had a doubt the dog was not correct. Mm-hmm. This deer went 2.28 <clears throat> miles, never pushed. It could have, he could have bedded up however many different times. He never bedded. He went that whole distance, and then we found him in his resting place. Without a dog, you're never getting there. Even with these fancy, fancy thermal drones that are coming out, would have never found it. So these are these are the crazy things that I've witnessed with my tracking dogs, and it's one of those ones you have to be there to believe it. Yeah, and real quick on the drones, you know, we train with the drones a lot, and you st- – you you cannot replace a dog with a drone. You just can't do it. The the no. foliage changes everything. Uh, the thermals are going to pick up heat signatures off of rocks, off of tree stumps, um, old metal laying in the wood. Like we're finding everything. And it's been about six months ago. Uh, one of the, the tech team commander come to me and they had trained with the drone all day. And he goes, he he's like, you know, I thought it was going to be more valuable to us than it is. He said, but there's always a place for the dog. Like you have to use the dog and the drone's a good thing. Like for us, especially, you know, sweeping a perimeter for us or staying out ahead of us. Um, it's a great tool, but it's not the, it's not the answer all the time. No. And, And for the deer tracking world, I will say the drone has a real strong spot in it. You know, if a deer is three, four, 500 yards away and dead out in a soybean field or cornfield, you launch a drone. It's going to find that deer within seconds Mm -hmm. really is. But a drone's not going to do any good when that deer has is, is got a broken leg and crippled. Yep. It can locate the deer, but now the hunter can't come in and legally dispatch that deer because then you'd be hunting with a drone. Mm-hmm. That's illegal. But a tracking dog come in, 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 a, in the states where you have off-leash tracking that's allowed, like down in the south, when they have a broken leg deer, you bring in a, a dog and a catch dog, that deer is, is caught in, in, suffer, the, it's in its suffering in, in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. and a drone's not going to help you with that so a drone has its place i definitely currently it's it's not legal in the state of michigan i sure hope one day they get that over changed i i do feel like they should be used there's no there's no damage in flying a drone looking for a deer there's no harm in that right um, and unfortunately the people that violate with drones is ruining it for the guys that want to use it for ethical reasons mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate but um yeah that's pretty much a lot of it Heath. it's been a great conversation we've had today yeah i appreciate it so any last thoughts i would just tell any of the listeners that that want to use a tracking dog stop tracking your deer when, when you when you realize you need to start grid searching when in doubt back out uh uncontaminated track is the fastest and most accurate work from a dog if you want to continue looking for your deer and your your buddy's looking for your deer you can't expect a dog to come in here and walk and, and, and track that track with great accuracy. The dog's got a lot of problem solving to do. So if you really feel like your deer's mortally shot and you're struggling to follow it, I would just say back out and, and find a tracking dog, and, and you're going to be pretty impressed with how quickly and, and how much little scent damage you could do to your property by bringing that dog in. A dog doesn't spook deer. Mm-hmm. Deer, not, deer do not freak out when they smell, they smell a dog. And, okay, let, let's go back to the scent real quick. When a hunter is sitting there all day for three, four hours on stand, and that scent cloud is just growing 
and growing and growing. Then that white tail comes through and hits that abundance of, of the scent cloud from that human sitting there. That's high alert for a deer. If a deer comes through and it comes across the hiking trail that you simply have just passed by yourself, that scent profile is so minute. Yeah, the deer knows it's a human, but he also knows that human's not there. It's not damaging to that deer. That deer is going to keep going on like it's daily thing. And a lot of guys like think the dog's going to come in and ruin your property. It doesn't happen. The dog comes in, the deer smells the dog. It realizes the dog came through at whatever time the deer, the dog was there. It knows the dog's not there no more. And the deer is not alarmed by it by one bit. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, the deer, we don't find he's within one to four days, the deer's back on camera or the hunter's already seen it. In some cases, the, the hunter shot the deer within 24 hours of us being there with the dog. So I like to debunk the, the everyone that thinks the dog's going to ruin your hunting property or neighbor's property. It's just simply not true. Yeah, that's that's a fact. Even in the coon hunting and the bear hunting world, deer can care good, less. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, Robert, I really appreciate your time. Um, enjoyed the conversation. And as always, thank you for helping us teach, train, and learn. Appreciate it, and I appreciate everything you guys do for us.